Um, we're going to be reading from Acts 4, verse 32 to 5, 14. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment... She fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among them, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Well, I have a uh, terrible apology to make, and that is that the details for the sermon today are not actually what they are on the screen, which is (laughs) a great tragedy because that was so beautifully read. Thank you, Isaac. Uh, But I must have put the wrong details into the computer, so uh, we're going to actually have to read (laughs) another passage. Uh, So I'm terribly sorry about that. Uh, but such is the way that it goes. Uh, so we're actually reading from Acts chapter 4 today. Well, that's what I'm speaking on. Uh, and if you want to know what happens uh, in Acts chapter 5, you'll have to come next week. Uh, so, so let's read that. Uh, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and uh, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem 
Annas the high priest was there and so was Caiaphas, John and Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel and this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen now Lord consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus after they prayed the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly Let's pray. (coughs) Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your words and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and believe what it is that you have to say to us. Lord, Help us to put our trust in Jesus again this morning and to know the joy of being found in him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we live in interesting times, don't we? Uh, We live uh, in a world which is changing rapidly. And if you log on to just about any Christian website at the moment, you'll see 
that there's an article or 10 or 12 or 20 expressing a lot of concern about the rising antagonism toward Christianity. A week or so ago, a great article did the rounds called Are You Ready for Exile Stage 2? And the basic premise of of that article was this, that Exile Stage 1 had begun with the sexual revolution uh, in the 60s and 70s, and in that stage the church was marginalised. But now we are fighting... Uh, sorry, sorry. then we were fighting for a voice, we were fighting to be heard, and we thought that if we presented our case well, then people would listen. Now we are in exile stage two. We're no longer in Athens, the place of open debate, but we're in Babylon, the place of hostile control. Athens was open to ideas, Babylon demands obedience to the new moral norms. In stage one, Steve McAlpine wrote, we were exploring ways to deal with the culture being uninterested in us. That is, in exile stage one, we had to fight to be seen. In exile stage two, we are at centre stage, centre stage of the Colosseum. Uh, In a related article, he wrote this. He said, we have assumed we would have to fight for a voice among a clamour of voices that compete for a hearing in the marketplace. Apologetics was all the rage. The marketplace would challenge us to prove our case, justify why we held such views and consider them in the light of other views. It was Athens after all. Wrong. It's Babylon. It is a gold image that we're instructed to bow down to. The truth is that the new Nebuchadnezzars of our culture demand obeisance, that is worship, and obedience. The voice of the Christian sexual ethic will be silenced in the marketplace upon pain of the fiery furnace, or a book burning at least. Now if that's an accurate portrayal, uh, and I think it's, while that it's probably slightly exaggerated at the moment, certainly the direction that we seem to be heading. How do we prepare for that? How do we prepare for exile stage two? How do we live as Christians uh, in that kind of world uh, where the Christian voice will be silenced upon the pain of the fiery furnace? Well, this passage here in Acts, I think, helps us to think about precisely that issue. Uh, Here in Acts chapter 4, the disciples suffer the first persecution for the sake of the gospel. Uh, And we learn how it is that we can face uh, similar encounters. The whole episode here follows on from what we looked at last week, uh, where Jesus performed a miracle through Peter and John. On their way up to the temple, Peter and John saw this crippled man, uh, and he called out to them for help. Uh, And Peter was able to heal him in the name of Jesus. And then he went on to preach to the gathered crowd about who Jesus was and all that he'd done. And it's that preaching of the gospel, that preaching about Jesus Christ, which is what really distresses the Jewish religious leaders uh, of the day. We're told that the priests and the captains of the temple guard, as well as the Sadducees, were greatly disturbed. And so they seized Peter and John and they put them in prison. And the next day they're brought out to sort of face this great tribunal of people. They stand before the high priest and his family and the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law and they begin to question Peter and John. And they ask them this question, by what power or what name did you, do you do this? 
You couldn't ask, I don't think, for a better kind of opening for the gospel. (laughs) Tell us (laughs) what it is that you're doing and by what power it is that you're doing it. And what does Peter do? Well, he courageously preaches the gospel. He says in verse 8, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And salvation is found in no one else. For there is no name, other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Notice what strikes Peter's hearers in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter of John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They're astonished by Peter and John's courage because their message is essentially, you killed God's saviour. The person that you think is the most worthless piece of scum in all the world, Jesus, God has made him the most important person in the whole world. And there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved except his name. Peter and John could have said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But they don't say that. They say you have to meet Jesus and you have to submit to him. There's no other way to be saved. (laughs) Jesus does have a wonderful plan for your life, actually. But his great plan is this, that he becomes your king. (laughs) And that you bow before him. His plan is that you deny yourself and follow him. That's Jesus' great plan for your life. That message was offensive to the Jews on the day that Peter and John spoke it. And that message is still offensive today. It's offensive because it's unavoidably confrontational. At some level people have to come to terms with the fact that they have despised and rejected God. They have to come to terms with the fact that the way that they've been living has been deeply, deeply wrong. And there are very few ways to kind of sugarcoat that. (laughs) How do you say that in a way which isn't confrontational? You need to turn from the way that you've been living, admit that that was wrong, and you need to come to Jesus. It's a confrontational message. Dale Keenan, in his book uh, Sex and the Eye World, notes three essential beliefs about the modern world, or three essential beliefs in the modern world, and the first two are these. You cannot criticise someone else's life choices and behaviour, that's rule one, and you cannot behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. Preaching the gospel breaks both those rules. You're both criticising someone else's life choices and behaviour And by doing that, you're harming them. The message of the kingship of Jesus is deeply offensive to our culture and to our world, and in fact to any culture. The message that Jesus is the only way is also deeply offensive. It's considered the height of intolerance. So I think you can add another taboo to the list of things 
which our society considers to be deeply, deeply wrong, and that is that the only thing which is really wrong is to not accept everything. Everything is right except the view that says that only one thing is right, which is, of course, wonderfully ironic. John Carson, in his uh, thoughtful book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, points out that tolerance used to mean accepting people and caring for them even though you disagree with them. Now tolerance means that you must agree with everything. And if you don't, you are incredibly intolerant. Last year, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at California State University had to deregister as an official campus group because they continued to require that students affirm their statement of beliefs. That is, they expected people joining the Christian group to believe what they believed. And because they held that line, they were forced to deregister. Well, in that setting, it's easy, I think, for us to tone down the message to kind of water it down (laughs) to God has a wonderful plan for your life. But Peter and John, having been arrested, spending the night in prison, being cross-examined by these leaders, preach the gospel with courage. They hold fast to the truth and they put it out there on the table. So at least these people know what it is that they're rejecting. Notice too that courage to preach the gospel does not require you to be an expert. One of the reasons that the religious leaders uh, were astonished is because Peter and John spoke with great confidence to this tribunal. All the people sitting on this panel were extensively trained in the scriptures. And here were these men who had no letters after their name. They had no PhDs. They weren't professors in the local university. They were ordinary people. And they stood up and they spoke with confidence to these great religious leaders. They had no formal training, except, of course, to learn at the feet of Jesus for three years. It's not ignorance that is valued here, but courage. Courage to speak when people think you have no place to speak. We live in a world where you have to be an expert to speak. If you want to say something about history, you have to be a historian. If you want to say something about legal issues, you have to be a a lawyer. Uh, And nobody believes what you have to say unless you have the qualifications. And it was a bit the same, I think, with Peter and John. Who are you to speak? You're not an expert. But they stood up and they, given half a chance, courageously preached the gospel. How do we respond to persecution? First, we preach the gospel with courage. Second, we refuse to be silent. The religious leaders are astonished by the courage and the wit of Peter and John, but instead of listening to what they have to say, they kind of upgrade their astonishment to rank hypocrisy. They're not interested in the truth. They can see this healed man standing in front of them and their greatest worry is how are we going to stop these people from talking? It's abundantly obvious to everybody else that this person has been healed so they can't stand up to deny it. Their only course of action then is to kind of threaten and warn Peter and John to be quiet, to threaten them to stop. 
But Peter and John reply in verse 19, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Religious leaders try to silence Peter and John, but they refuse to be silenced. And there's more, I think, in common with their situation and ours, between their situation and ours, than we might first realise. While it's true that no one is putting us in in prison, uh, there have been people who've been hauled before courts and the like. A Christian campsite in Victoria was hauled before the courts in the past few years because they refused to hold a camp uh, run by a gay rights group. Not because they didn't like the people, but because the message was totally at odds with the kind of the foundational ethos of the people running the campsites. The New South Wales uh, Department of Education recently banned a number of books for use in religious education in schools. Among them was uh, the book A Sneaking Suspicion by John Dixon, which is basically a book that shows how the gospel stands up to scrutiny and, uh, and scepticism. The, uh, the ban has now been lifted on two of those books. But what's really disturbing, I think, is that the complaint that led to the whole thing referred to the message being conveyed as dangerous, not unpleasant uh, or unhelpful, but actually dangerous and harmful. It's not enough for Christians to be marginalised, they must be silenced. And even if we haven't been hauled before a court or commanded to be silent, the dominant expectation of our culture is that we remain silent. You can be a Christian, you just can't say anything about it. In public debate, you can talk from any viewpoint except a Christian one. Christianity has to be kept out of the public square. Sex is in public. Religious views are in private. As has been noted, uh, particularly in the American setting, freedom of religion is being more and more narrowly defined. You can go to church, you can tick the box on Christian forms, but you can't hold any views contrary to the majority or say anything about them if you do. Well, one wonders in such a situation whether we've already capitulated to the demand to be silent. Nobody has said, don't talk about the gospel, (laughs) but it's the prevailing mood of the society. Opportunities come our way and we keep silent because we're afraid of breaking the unspoken rule. Not don't mention the war, but don't mention the gospel. That said, I don't think we need to go to the other extreme. The other extreme would be to think that silence is always wrong. I don't think that's true. We need to be as wise as serpents and serpents and as innocent as doves. And speaking up might not always be the best thing to do at the best at, at that time. The problem, I think, is when we, we become totally silent, when we become silent out of fear of men, fear of people, rather than out of wisdom and the fear of God. It's a bit like Jesus retreating from the hostile crowds. There were times when he walked away, when he said, no, now is not the time. 
He didn't always stand and put up a fight. He did eventually. He put up a fight on the cross. But he recognised that there was a time and a place. I also think we don't often acknowledge the courage that people do show. You see, I think it's easy to stand up here and to flog people to death uh, for being silent in a difficult world situation. But I think we also need to realise that actually what happens most of the time is that people really want... I think many of us really would like to say something. And sometimes we take those opportunities and sometimes we don't. I can think of people who... Who've had bold conversations, and not just with strangers, but with family and friends as well. Someone was telling me uh, just recently about a situation where they'd had to stand up uh, to uh, kind of a, a member of the family, and that meant causing great strain in their relationship. Uh, to stand up to defend the nature of the gospel, and that caused great strain. Someone shared recently how a friend of theirs was living in a relationship with someone who was married and they had the guts to ask their friend, what will you say to God on the day that he visits? What will you say to God on the day that you meet him? How will you defend your life without Jesus? That's a pretty gutsy thing to say, I reckon. I know someone whose family is incredibly antagonistic toward them because of their faith. And they've been worn down by the insults and the vitriol. Incredibly discouraging. Heartbreaking. But they have refused to be silenced. I think we belittle those people when we go around saying things like, we've all shrunk back and we're ashamed of the gospel. It's not true, actually. I'm sure there are times when many of us do shrink back and we ought to confess those things to God and ask God for forgiveness. But I'm also greatly encouraged, and I hope you are too, by the example of those people around us who are bold for the sake of the gospel. And in a culture where the prevailing mood is silence on religious issues, people who defy those unspoken rules and obey God rather than men. Those people are great miracles of God sent for our encouragement. How do we respond to persecution? First, we preach the gospel. Second, we refuse to be silent. Last, we trust God and pray for boldness. Peter and John stand up and preach the gospel. There is no other name, they say, under heaven by which men can be saved. And though they're asked to be silent, they refuse to do that. But they're not so foolish to believe, you see, that their confidence and their boldness rests with them. They return home from their run-in with the religious leaders and they go back to the other Christians and they report what what has happened. And having done that, they gather together to pray. And in their prayer, they do two things. First, they acknowledge that God is in control. They begin their prayer with these words, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They acknowledge 
do you say that God is sovereign, he's in control, that everything that exists God has made. The sovereign control and rule of God is seen most wonderfully in the cross. They pray in verse 27, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The nations and the kings and the rulers and the people were all raging against God and against Jesus, but remarkably, they were doing exactly what God intended. They were doing what God and his power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They were so opposed to God that they put God to death. But actually, in the wonderful irony of the cross, as they were expressing their deep hatred of God, God was reconciling the world to himself. They were doing what they thought was the best thing to do. But they were also doing exactly what God had planned. God was in control. Just as he made the heavens and the earth, so he's in control of the events of history. He was in control of the events of Jesus' death. He was in control uh, of uh, the persecution that these believers were facing. And he's in control of whatever persecution we might face. As the world falls apart and as being a Christian becomes more and more difficult, it's great to stop, I think, and to give thanks that God is in control. It's so easy to become despondent and depressed and anxious. But these Christians began their prayer by praising God who held their lives and their futures and their present in his hands. First, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. But second, they ask that God would grant them boldness. Verse 30, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They pray for God to work mightily and miracles and wonders and all kinds of things. But do you see the keynote, the key thing that they pray for is boldness. That's the prayer that's answered at the end of the chapter when they go out and they proclaim the gospel boldly. That's the key thing. The courage to speak the truth. As I was reflecting on uh, this passage this week, It struck me that the thing that I often pray for is opportunities, opportunities to speak the gospel, which is not a bad thing to pray for, I suppose. And God always wonderfully answers those prayers, which is just amazing, isn't it? But this passage suggests that praying for boldness is just as important, if not more important. Peter had the opportunity handed to him on on a platter but it took great courage to really speak the truth. To say the Jesus that you crucified is the only Jesus who can save you. I have a hunch that the reason we don't pray for boldness is because we think that opportunities is the bit that we need God for and courage is the bit that we need to do. 
But more than anything, this prayer and God's answer shows that boldness is not something that is within our power to attain. As one person wrote, such boldness is a divine gift, not a moral virtue to be acquired by repeated exercise. Christians who have been bold in one context can easily be intimidated in another unless they seek God's enabling. That is, we think the remedy to, bold, to, uh, to boldness is courage. But actually the remedy to fear, I should say, is prayer and the gift of the Holy Spirit from God. This past week uh, was the last episode of Redesign My Brain. I don't know if anyone has been watching it with Todd, whatever his name is, Todd with all the T-shirts. Uh, and uh, he, every episode he takes an arbitrary challenge of some ridiculous nature and uses the best of brain science to kind of, uh, try and overcome the, uh, the obstacle. This week he had to tightrope walk uh, across an eight-metre span 21 storeys up in the air and he went all over the world getting the best of brain science to help him to do it. He used virtual reality simulations and he abseiled down the side of a building uh, and he trained uh, to be able to, to do this incredible feat to overcome his fear so that he could walk across this tightrope. Uh, and he did it in the end. It was incredible. And that might work for walking a tightrope. But we don't need the best of brain science. And we don't need intense training for four months to be able to preach the gospel. What we need is the Holy Spirit. And for that, all we need to do is pray. The place where they were gathered shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. We're living in interesting times, I think. And who knows what will happen? Anything could happen, really, good or bad. But whatever happens, these three responses remain central to how we live as Christians in the world. We preach the gospel. We refuse to be silent. And we trust God is in control and pray for boldness. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You founded this world in which we live. You created us. You reign supreme over all the world. And yet, Lord, we see that the nations rage and the people conspire against you and against your anointed Saviour, Jesus Christ. Though he came in peace to rescue us from sin and death and judgment, we put him to death. And as his name is still proclaimed throughout the world, that same animosity and that same hatred is stirred up in people's hearts. And Lord, we long more than anything for others to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus that we have come to, that they might be forgiven, that they might be redeemed, that they might be reconciled to you. 
And yet, Lord, so often to speak the truth is to invite difficulty and hardship and ridicule and suffering. And Father, as we look at the direction that our world is going, that our society is going, we feel that more and more keenly. But Lord, we trust that you are in control. That you hold our lives in your hands. And we remember with great confidence that in the greatest evil of human history, you brought about the greatest good. And so, Father, we pray that you would work mightily in this place, in this land, in this world, that you would fill us by your Holy Spirit with boldness to speak the gospel and that speaking the gospel, many would be saved. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.